Amen. So this is a foretaste of what, if you are coming to the ARC conference, I'll be speaking on there. I've been invited to do one address at the conference. And um, unless things change, I plan on doing a variation of what we're going to be talking today. My desire is to show from the first three chapters of Genesis, as well as three passages from the New Testament, what it is that God has to say about who man is. And before we look at who man is, we're going to be asking the question, why did God create the world? And therefore, what is man to do? And the question, why did God create the world, is probably one of the the greatest questions or uh, most profound ideas or statements or, or things that we could think of. Why are we all here? Why is any of this here? And we know from Scripture, as well as the creeds of the church, that God created man for a noble purpose. The Westminster Catechism begins with, the chief purpose or the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him. And so we know that that's why God created men, but that in Adam all men have died, and only in Christ can they be set free. So these are my foundational ideas, that we were created to glorify God, that Adam, as we'll see here in a few minutes, did not glorify God, that he died, and that we in him died with him, and then sinned approvingly, something like compounding interest. We, We added to his sins and lovingly received that corruption from our father, Adam, and that now that we're in Christ, how should we cooperate with his grace? So much of Christianity presents the gospel, and then it says, you're on a new destiny. Rejoice in that. Amen. We should rejoice in that. But the, but the scriptures plainly teach that we are to cooperate with the grace of God that is at work in us, and it says to do that in one particular way. So this is my question today, is how should men in every area, in every way, cooperate with the grace of God to accomplish the original purpose for Adam. Adam's to glorify God. He doesn't glorify God. He glorifies himself. And in so doing, falls in corruption. And it's only in Christ that he can be redeemed. But now that he's been redeemed in Christ, is he just waiting for heaven? Or is he supposed to do something else? That's my theme. My aim is this, that modern Western culture has destroyed masculinity. When I say modern Western culture, I do not mean that this is a... Uh, this is an individual error or a unique error of the Western culture. All cultures have destroyed masculinity because Adam is destroying masculinity. Nevertheless, in our culture, two great errors are at work. One is what might be called machismo. And if that's a new, f- a new phrase for you, it just means bravado, braggadociousness, this, this fake masculinity, which is a facade, it, it usually, if you had to think about it in a picture form, it might be like camo and weightlifting and guns and beating people up and bar fights and destroying those around you. That's machismo. That's, that's fake masculinity. The other form of fake masculinity today is what you might call effeminacy, which is softness. It's, it's fainting at the first sign of danger. It's a falling away from anything that's hard, anything that requires effort, that requires persistence. So as Christian men who live in the West, 
We must therefore be thoroughly biblical in our attempts to obey God. These two great dangers, these two great errors, which are major ideas in our culture, have to be avoided and overcome and triumphed, triumphed against. And if we do not do that through the word of God, we will error in responding to error, if that makes sense. So, um, saying all of that, what I want to do is look at what does the Bible say about who man is? Because if sin has distorted our understanding of who man is, then how do we get back to a healthy understanding? And it's my opinion, it's clear scriptural teaching that it comes from scripture, that idea. So if we are to come to a biblical understanding of what man was called to be, we must learn directly from God who we are as his creatures and understand how his world works. God made the world a certain way. And if we live in response to that world according to his law and dictates, we then can live at harmony with his original design. And it's my desire to show that that is one of the major facets of Christianity, is how do people turn from sin, turn from idols to serve a living and a true God, and how do they then, after having come to Christ in faith, begin to walk out their sanctification and in walking out their sanctification, they begin to submit every area to Christ. So, I want to look at five things today. One is the original purpose of Adam as an image bearer of God, that he was supposed to have dominion over the world. I want to look at his special calling to care for creation and his special calling within that calling to care for the garden. Then I want to look at the fall curse and death, which came through his rebellion, life in Christ and the gospel, and then the goal of Christian maturity. So much of this will sound like a gospel presentation, and it is, because we're told, as you have received Christ, so walk in him. Everything about the Christian life is gospel application, gospel receiving and living according to the promises. And so we will get to very specific things, and we'll, we'll talk about that at the end. But all of those things, all of the leaves of the tree, come from one root. What did John the Baptist say? He said, put the axe to the root. And, and so the, the question in our lives as men is so often we run around in our lives and we are very concerned with ripping off all the leaves and tearing down all the bad fruit, but we don't take away the plant. And if you want a visual sermon on that, come to my backyard. I will show you many examples where, where I'm constantly just, I run it over with my mower and it's there a week later. So all of these issues in life, whether it be um, you know, chief, chief issues in li lives of men, finding a wife, finding a spouse, living with, with our wives, raising our children, battling pornography, dealing with work issues, dealing with issues in the culture, all of them stem from the root of, have I been recreated in Christ? And am I, as a new creation in Christ, so in love with him that I receive his word and then try by his grace to respond to life according to his word? So, um, I want to I go through Genesis 1, 2, and 3 at a very high level and explain why God made man. 
In God's sovereign plan, he bestowed man with a specific dignity and honor and gave him a very noble task of representing God on the earth. Psalm 115 says, the heaven is the Lord's and he's given the earth to men. And so, although he still owns the earth, he's given Adam a job, which is to take dominion over the world and to represent him or represent him on the earth. And this is why God gives him the image. God did this not because man was great. He was, before he was created, he was nothing, and then he was a creature. But the reason he did this is that the knowledge of God would cover the earth. So we look at the world today, and there are billions of people on the earth who bear the image of God, and we are tempted to say, well, it's really about people. And when we think about what the image of God does, images image forth. They are representative. They, they represent what they're made after. If you think of a statue, the reason we put up statues is to remind us about the person. And so God has filled this world with image bearers so that we would not miss the point. The point is, it's God. God is the point of the world. God is the point of all of life. So as a bearer of God's image, Adam is given an immeasurably difficult task of living in God's place on the earth. Think about this. You are called to represent the uncreated, all-powerful God, and through your living on the earth, you're to be his king or governor in his place. It's much different than someone just renting a house. He's supposed to be the representative of God on the earth. In Genesis 1, we're going to look at 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish. Those two things are the same idea. They're, they're, they're one and the same. God says, let Adam or let man have our image and he's speaking within himself, the Father, the Son, the Spirit are revealing their counsel together. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. So those two ideas, bearing God's image and having dominion, are connected. They're, they're not able to be divorced from one another. If Adam does not have dominion, he cannot express the image of God because God reigns. And if God, if, if God does not give Adam the image of God, he does not have the ability to reign. So they're, they're connected. Nevertheless, Genesis says one, in verse 127, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the first example in the scriptures of what you might call a poema or a poem song. And the point of this if you, if you look at it in your Bible, it's indented over and it's put in, sometimes they put it in different fonts. The reason for this is that as Moses is writing Genesis, he's offsetting this idea to cause the reader to reflect on the significance of what's just happened. God has just invested his likeness in a creature. Six days, God's making the world. God's setting apart the sun, the moon, the, the land, the seas. He's dividing it, filling it. He's forming and filling each day, and then he invests himself in a creature. And so this is showing us a very high calling and a very great gift to represent God in his rule over his fellow creatures. This is what man was made to do. 
If, therefore, Adam is to fulfill his calling and task, he has to do it in relation to his God. So again, the way I see this is God has created the world and God is residing in heaven and he's ruling over everything and he's given Adam a task of living in dominion over the earth in relation to him. And so as Adam lives on the earth, he has to live in harmony with heaven. And what I mean by that isn't a mystical sense. He has to live in response to the one who rules over all. He's ruling over something that he's been given a temporary charge for. Adam did not create the world, but it's his responsibility. God then commands the man and the woman, and he speaks things into existence for six days, and then he directly speaks to Adam and his wife. So God is forming and filling the world, and each time he speaks, he speaks and he just declares, let there be, let there be. And now he says something to the creature. This is the first example in the scriptures of God saying something specifically to a creature, and it's no surprise that he says it to man. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So understanding Genesis 1, we feel this cadence of God's speaking specific things about his world and he's forming and filling it. And then he begins to address one of his creatures. He's no longer just declaring something that should exist in the universe He's now, or in the earth. He's then declaring something to his created creature. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea. Why is it important to understand this difference of God's speech in this verse? Is because every time God spoke before this, it immediately took place. Let there be light, and there was light. And now he says something specific to his vice regent, his, the one who's reigning over the earth on his behalf, and he gives him a command, a creative speech, that can't be immediately fulfilled because this doesn't take place immediately. Fill the earth. Think about that. How, how could Adam fill the earth immediately? It would be impossible. Indeed, there are places today. If you drive through Iowa, we have not filled the earth. And so understanding this, we, we begin to see, okay, Adam now has to live in response to this command And he's got to remember his charge and live in response to that charge, relating to God day by day. If man is going to fulfill his task, the end goal will be that God will be represented throughout the earth, that his image bearers will be in every place, and God will reign over them as they submit to his loving reign, loving lordship. God is going to be glorified throughout the earth just as in heaven. Numbers and Habakkuk both say this, that the glory of the Lord or the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will be in every place. And I think that's God's original design and he's still doing that today. So though this great calling of God was given to Adam to fulfill over the whole earth, as a good father, God first tests Adam in a smaller scenario. God says, fill the earth and subdue it. And that's kind of a general task. That's going to define all of man for all time. Nevertheless, God knows that Adam can't do that. 
And so he gives him a small realm, a smaller scenario, a smaller sphere in which Adam will then live. God gives him a garden and he gives him a special particular task and he is to protect that garden. Verse 15 of Genesis 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Just as a side note before we get too too much further, every time you see the word man in the first few chapters of Genesis, it's the word Adam. We're named after this guy. Just as you're beginning to think about this stuff and chew on it, God took Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. So he's supposed to do something there and to keep it. And I I take from that that uh, two things. Specifically, the garden is not a perfect place. This is sounding challenging to some of you because you think, okay, Eden is, is the pinnacle of heaven on earth and there's no sin there. And I would say yes and amen. But that does not mean, if you've ever seen these drawings, sometimes they do this in, in Sunday school, not a big fan of these drawings, where it's every possible type of fruit is in the Garden of Eden and every possible good thing and there's you know birds singing and squirrels hopping from tree to tree and it's this paradise. It, indeed, the scriptures present it as a pristine place, but why would Adam have to work at anything if, it, if there was nothing to do? So as we begin to think about why is Adam doing something in the garden, we have to begin to say, okay, what's this saying about Adam's purpose? And I think it's that it is this. Adam, as he works in the garden, is going to beautify it and glorify it and make it, he's going to fulfill God's design. So Adam being made in the image of God is going to fill what God has formed. God forms and then fills. He says, let there be land, and then he says, let the land bring forth animals. Let there be a sea, and then let the sea team. Let there be an expanse, and then let that expanse be filled with birds. So, So this forming and filling cadence, or forming and filling pattern, is what I believe Adam takes up. He's given a task to live in this garden, and he has to work it. There's stuff to do, and he has to keep it. There's dangers outside. Further, he keeps the garden, he guards it, and protects it. And from this I say that God is saying anything that possibly would threaten the garden, you're supposed to protect the garden from that thing. But he must not simply subject the created realm around him. This is where many attempts to become Christian men and mature men go astray, is we think, okay, God's original intention was that man rule over the earth, so we're going to become really serious, and we're going to be the masters of our own sanctification. We're going to take the reins by the, the horns, so to speak. We're going to take life and be the masters of our own destiny, and we'll become real mature men. And Instantly, I would say we're totally missing the point of this story. The reason why is because of what we're about to read is that as Adam subjects the entire world, as he has dominion over his created uh, fellow created creatures, and as he protects and keeps the garden, he not only has to subject them to God's command, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion, he also has to subject himself. And this is where the axe has to be laid to the root. This is what is the center of all Christian maturity. It's this particular thing. 
The Lord God said to the man or commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. If Adam is to fulfill his task, he must love God first, honoring God's word above his own desire for that fruit. You see, Adam is called to subject everything around him to glorify God with it, to use it in such a way as to bring God glory. But then God gives him another command. As you're subjecting and protecting and guarding the garden, you have to guard yourself against what's in the center of the garden or what, what Eve says is in the center of the garden. He doesn't say that. God doesn't say that. So this is going to be Adam's daily worship is that he submits his whole life and his whole self to God. Do you see, maybe this is clicking for you in Romans 12, one through two, we're commanded to subject ourselves as our daily spiritual worship, to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. That before we turn and address the things in our lives, we first have to take God's word as a sword and turn it against ourselves and everything within us that would rebel against God's authority. Therefore, before Adam can truly work, he must first worship. This is what I mean when I say that Adam has to relive in relation to heaven. That as he lives upon the earth and and does his God-appointed task on the earth, he has to do it in relation to his God daily. Immediately, however, Adam abdicates his position and totally forsakes his wife. If you're familiar with the story, it should become more heartbreaking every year. I saw this post on Facebook. It was from a friend of a friend, and he was doing his Bible reading, and on January 3rd, he said, every year reading reading Genesis 3 in the early part of January gets harder and harder because we begin to see just what was lost in Adam's immediate failure. The serpent enters the garden and tempts the woman, and Adam is completely missing. Sometimes it's not always a great practice to do this, but sometimes it's very significant what's missing from the text, isn't it? Adam doesn't show up on the scene until Genesis 3.6. There's five whole verses before this which are describing what's going on in this serpent's little subterfuge as he's weaving his way into the garden. Instead of Adam putting himself between the woman and the serpent, combating the serpent's words with the words of God, he himself eats the fruit. Isn't that interesting? So Eve, earlier in that that passage, she says what God's word is, but she says it wrong. She says something a little bit different than what God has said. And so by this, we might imply that either Adam had heard incorrectly, or much more likely, he had himself slightly twisted what God's word was. And then what was the chief temptation that the serpent used? Did God say? The serpent's goal is to subvert or, or institute rebellion against God's word. And so Adam was supposed to what? Protect the garden. He was supposed to wield something, a sword or a stone, or use his hands and feet. You can choke out a serpent very easily. Uh, But in doing that, he would have had to put himself in the danger. What's, What's the problem with serpents? 
They're poisonous, many of them, or they can strangle you. They're a threat. They're a real threat. And Adam was supposed to protect the garden. And that necessarily means that he had to present himself as vulnerable to put himself between the serpent and the wife. Although he was bestowed with the Imago Dei, immediately after eating the fruit, now the man and the wife and his wife are ashamed of themselves. You understand how far, how far the fall is. That in the first sin, they who had lived with God, in harmony with God, hearing from God, speaking to them directly, now they're running from God immediately. In listening to the serpent's word, Adam sinned against God and in so doing unleashed cursed into the world, the world that he was called to protect and cultivate. So Adam has sinned against God. He's rebelled against God's word. He hasn't lived in relation to his God. And then he has, instead of protecting the world, the scriptures tell us in Romans 5, he's unleashed death into the world. We see this in Genesis 3. We're going to look at 17 and 18. To Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Isn't that interesting here? So he heard from God, protect and keep the garden. Then the serpent says to the woman, has God said? And then she turns and says to Adam, having been convinced herself, why don't we eat this fruit? She, they, they presented it as desirable. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, see those two oppositions? You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So Adam's supposed to protect the whole earth. And in failing to do that, he unleashes death upon the whole earth. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So now in the place of what seemingly was painless work, Now Adam is going to have painful work. Verse 18, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth from you, for you. What what did God say in Genesis 1 that the earth would do? It would bring forth green plants, trees, shrubs, vegetation, fruit of every kind, grain of every kind. And now he says, thorns and thistles, the earth will bring up for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. So, God's warnings against eating from the tree are sure in that death was unleashed. He said in this verse, verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the sentence of death that is now hanging over the man. As God had already purposed to use this for his eternal purpose, he postponed the execution of their sentence. Nevertheless, Adam and his wife, as you know, were sanctioned and expelled from the garden. They were kicked out of the place of fellowship with God. They were were removed from this environment in which they knew God presumably day to day. Through his sin, Adam is cut off from the tree of life, right? God says in exiling Adam and Eve out of the garden, he says, unless they take from the tree of life, we need to get them out of here. There's, why that happens is a question for another day, but nevertheless, this is the prototype of all man. 
And by all man, I mean men and women, but specifically in our context as men together, we're looking at what does the scripture say to men. And so Adam as our father, our representative to God, in his sinning, we sinned. That's, that's very clear from the scriptures. However, having died in Adam, we also became enslaved to sin and sinned approvingly and are therefore justly under the same sentence of death in our own sins as well. Romans 5, 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, that's where I'm getting this idea that we sinned in Adam. Verse 13, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Moses is the one who gave the law. That's, that's Paul's way of explaining what he was talking about in the prior verse. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So from this, I take that the doctrine of original sin is quite clear and good. Romans 5.12, all sinned in Adam's sin. And many people object to that saying, that's not fair. And I would say, maybe not. It doesn't seem fair to me, but it's fair in God's economy as we're going to see the same mechanism of Adam's ability to represent all men is the same mechanism by which the cross of Christ becomes applicable to us. And so if we rebel against the doctrine of original sin and we say, that doesn't seem right, God's wrong in attributing sin to all men, we cannot simultaneously hear the free offer of grace based on the death of another man. They're sinning. Okay, so, so that's the objection to original sin. Let's say you object to it now, and you're not yet convinced of the goodness of that doctrine of Adam's ability to represent all men. Nevertheless, what Paul says in Romans 5.14 says, you sinned in a different way. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those, everybody who's not Adam, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Did anyone except for Eve take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? No. No one got back into that garden and did the exact same sin that Adam did. They sinned in a like manner. Their sinning was not an exact copy of Adam, but it was in essence. It is still sin. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. That's what Paul is doing. He's answering objections to this idea. And he says, if you don't, if you don't agree with the fact that in Adam all sinned, then you're not understanding what makes Christ's cross applicable to you. How then is the question that I want to answer, how then are we to be redeemed from the sentence of death? And if you know the gospel, the answer is quite clear. Out of God's great love and grace, he sent his son to freely offer forgiveness to anyone who would receive it. That's the way that they are offered into this new life. But how does that come about? Romans 5.15, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the, great, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So Adam's presenting a parallelism here. He's saying that Adam's sin unleashed death. And he's saying 
that Jesus Christ's free offer of grace unleashed grace over those who are in Adam and versus those who are in Christ. And Paul makes that quite clear. Verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. You see, Christ is not just the opposite of Adam. He's the polar opposite. He's much greater than Adam. Adam sinned once and unleashed death. Christ died once and covered a multitude of sins. He doesn't just cover Adam's individual sin. He covers all those who, according to verse 17, come into him. For if, because of one man, Adam's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. If you've ever wondered, how do you defeat the false teaching of universalism, this is your verse. Because it says, after comparing many sins, death unleashed, one death, many graces unleashed, he says, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace reign in life. It's not everyone. It's not everyone who sinned. It's those who receive the gift. I don't want to focus on that, however. I want to focus in this phrase, that in Christ, God restores what was lost in the fall, life in place of death, fellowship in place of exile, but not just at the end of our lives. Not only will death no longer reign over our lives, but we will, according to that verse, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So hopefully this is beginning to click for us. Adam was supposed to rule over the earth as a vice representative or a, a rep, a, someone who reigns under, like a, someone who's doing the will of the king. The king gives him a task and he goes and does it. And he remembers the king's command as he goes and he does what's honorable to the king. And then in that place, he commits high treason and rebellion against that king and subverts that king's reign and then he dies. And so Paul then presents Christ as the one who undoes what Adam did, which was unleash death and destroy his capacity to have dominion over the earth. So Paul highlights quite clearly in this phrase that those who receive the gift of grace in Christ Jesus are able to reign in life. God is restoring Christian men to have dominion over the earth. Now, very clearly, I do not mean that we can use the earth however we want and we can go around like little tyrants. The whole point of emphasizing that Adam has to live in relation to God is that men can only have dominion over the earth if they have dominion over the earth under God. So, the disobedience to which we were constrained in Adam's disobedience is overturned. And for those who receive the grace of God in Christ, they are restored to that calling to reign in life. And by this, I mean that they are to work in their gardens. I'm using quotes around that idea. Because you are not a farmer. I'm not a farmer. Do I still have a garden? Yes, I still have a garden. And as we'll see over the next few months, we have many gardens. Therefore, as men who are set anew in Christ, it behooves us as men to learn both how and what God calls us to do. 
And I think it has to be established in that order. How do we live in God's world according to God's dictates, his speech, his words, his law? How do we live? And then we learn what are we supposed to do? This is, or should be, hopefully it is in this church, this should be the aim of all godly pastoring and preaching. Now, obviously, pastoring, preaching is inapplicable. It, it, it is applying this, the gospel. That, that's what this is. That's what I take from Paul saying that those who come into Christ are to reign in life through God's grace. The gospel does not just end at you have forgiveness from sins. That is the beginning And then we're set on a new trajectory. Paul says there's an upward call in Christ Jesus. So what is that upward call? I think that Paul models that, like Adam, he has been assigned a field. And he models this through his teaching and his life. Paul's field is the church. And he's supposed to cultivate fruit, right? Doesn't this sound like Adam? He's supposed to guard it and keep it. He's supposed to beautify it and work in it and bring up fruit from the ground. In 1 Corinthians 3, 7 through 9, Paul is describing his ministry to the Corinthian church and he says, you are God's field. And then he says, you are God's building. I love Paul because he mixes metaphors on purpose to to get you to understand Paul's not concerned with physical fruit alone. Paul then testifies about his work of toil. What was the curse of Adam? By the sweat of your face, you shall eat the ground. There's going to be toil in bringing up fruit out of the ground. Colossians 1, 28 through 29. Him, Jesus Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So Paul is giving an example. He's saying, I'm like Adam. I have toil. I have to bring fruit through the gospel, through God's word, out of these churches, and it's effort. And then he says, how do I work? In the grace, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. At another place with the Corinthians, he says, I worked harder than any of the apostles. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the, the grace of God which was within me. So that is what I believe is the how. How are we as men to live in God's world in relation to his ways? And this proclamation of the apostles, not just their lives with the churches, but also their teaching, that proclamation, again, this is going back to verse 28, him we proclaim, they're speaking about Jesus Christ, so that those people would become mature in Christ, that proclamation has been faithfully recorded in the Spirit-given writings. That's another word for Scripture, writings. The Spirit-given writings, which are vital if we are to accomplish our task. What is our task? It's as redeemed Christian men to live in response to God, in love for God, having been loved by Him, and to do it all in the grace of God, and to do it all for God's glory, and to do it according to what he says about it. We do not get to rule over our own gardens according to our own ways. Just like Adam had to subject himself to that one particular prohibition, 
There was only one rule that, that Adam had to obey before he could submit everything else in creation. We too, if we are living as Christian men, we have to submit ourselves. I want to look at 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. So many people have memorized 2 Timothy 3, 16, and that's wonderful. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. But, but we disconnect it from the point. It's not just to teach us that scripture is inerrant. It is. It's wonderful. Without it being inerrant, we would have nothing. However, that verse is smack in a context which we're about to look at in a second which is, what's the point of Scripture? Knowing that Scripture is inerrant with a Bible on your shelf collecting dust does you nothing. Knowing that Scripture is inerrant is just the beginning idea that you need, or one of the beginning ideas that you need, to begin to start to read it and chew it and have it form your life. So I want to give from Paul's example to Timothy and from Paul's command to Timothy, I want to give what I believe is the how of everything that we're going to do as a group of men in the next forever, months. Um, how do we learn about God's world and receive his grace and have the spirit supplied to us? It is by hearing with faith. So this is Paul's command to Timothy. And it's important, just if you have this objection, if you've ever read Timothy or Titus, or what, what have you, and you've said, well, I'm not a pastor. First and second Timothy doesn't apply to me. The reason it's in the Bible is because it applies to you. So this is not just Paul's command to church officers, just to set that at the onset. Verse 14, but as for you, Timothy, he, he, this is his child, this is his son, Timothy is the heart of Paul. Paul loves Timothy. This is a father giving the most precious command possible to his son. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowledge and heart there, knowing from whom you learned it, faithful men, the Holy Spirit. Because he's talking about the sacred writings in the next verse. What does he mean when he says that? Is he referring to the New Testament? No, he's referring to the Old Testament. And how from childhood, when, when Timothy was a child, he did not have a King James New Testament around. Okay, just to be very clear. How from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. He's saying you've had familiarity with the scriptures. Why? Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. To make you wise for salvation. Isn't that an interesting phrase? To make you wise for salvation. So why would we need wisdom for salvation? We're just going to heaven. No. Salvation is beginning to work its way back in time to now. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out. It's spirated. It's inspired of the Holy Spirit. It's breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. To what end? That's what the next verse answers the question. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So to me, it sounds earlier, Paul said to the Colossians, I'm working. I want to present you mature to Christ. I have toil 
that I'm trying to do in the churches and I'm working in my field, in God's field, in God's building. I'm building something. And then he communicates his heart to Timothy. You need to be prepared for good works. You need to be prepared to know how to work in the spheres which you've been assigned. So I take from these passages as well as the rest of the New Testament and, and the Old Testament in some places, particularly Deuteronomy 6 and 8, that maturity in Christ living as a man of God, therefore, is a stability in walk. We're not just believing one day, being devastated the next, walking away from Christ, coming back and weeping and jumping and doing outward celebration, but not having inward reality. I think what maturity in Christ is, a stability in walk that is progressively growing, and it's a consistency of faith. It's not wavering in doubts and being settling, being okay with our doubts, and living in his power through his word. If we are to be mature in Christ, therefore... We will not do what Adam did. Adam rejected God's authority over that tree. And so now that we have been made alive in Christ, we as new Adams, new men, are seeking to be mature in Christ. And therefore, just like Adam was supposed to live in relation to his God, receiving God's love, receiving God's commands, we have to, as Christian men, receive God's word and trust in it believe in those promises, and then obey. And unlike Adam, who didn't put himself between the serpent and the woman, we have to be like Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did he do it? He gave himself up for her. He put himself between the serpent and the woman. So this is what I believe is our command as Christian men, is that we first recognize God's authority over ourself, over ourselves, our wives, our children, our church, vocation, or civil government, any particular area. Those of you who've been in the church for a while might recognize this pattern. In all areas, we will gladly submit them to our loving king. So what do I mean by that? I mean that as you grow as a Christian, you may not know what God says about civil government. And you shouldn't, therefore, just go and find out all you can about what the scriptures might say and what, what godly men have written about how we should live in civil government. That's good, but that is on the periphery of your responsibilities. The first thing, the first emphasis that you should be concerned about is how do I keep control over my heart by the word of God? Because from the heart springs every issue of life that all of our realms, all of the gardens which God has assigned us to, all of them stream from, am I going to honor God's word and in love to my God, not take from the tree when I want to take from the tree? How do I put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit, which is communicated to me through the word? So over the next months, we will be examining God's word to see how he has called us to live in each of our gardens. And again, I'm using this as an idea. This is my whole theme, is that we've been assigned gardens. We've been assigned gardens to live in, to protect, to keep, to beautify, to extend. 
We will see over time in particular ways how this is only possible if we're born again, if we abide in his word, if we trust in his promises and are empowered by his spirit and surrounded by our fellow Christian man. That's the point of these is to begin to form fellowships with other Christian men so that we would be accountable to and hold them accountable to God's word. Now, I want to speak very briefly, although it's not in my notes, about about this pattern that I emphasized in the final verses, or the final phrase here, surrounded by our fellow Christian man. And I need to go back to Colossians. Him we proclaim, excuse me, I, I need to go back to 2 Timothy. It's important to understand here in verse 14, this phrase, knowing from whom you received it. How did Timothy come to the Lord? Close. Before Paul, how did Timothy come to the Lord? His mother and his grandmother. He says in his first letter to Timothy, he says, the faith which was first in your grandmother and was then in your mother, and now I am sure is in you. So there's a community. There's a family around Timothy. And then I think this verse also says, continue in what you have learned. Paul spent a lot of time with Timothy. And he's saying that you've learned it from me and the sacred writings. You see those two? They should go together. So, in these sessions in the future, we will discuss extremely practical issues like scripture reading and prayer, finding a wife, many of you are concerned with that issue, loving our wives, raising children, leading family worship, church participation, employment and business, and civic duties. These are the gardens. So if you're familiar with this idea that there are seven institutions, I'm basically modeling, I model my whole life after this. This has shaped my entire, the way that I think about everything, is that each of these, you can think of it like a tower, that there's this center idea of myself and how I'm submitted to Christ, and then my wife, not just family, my wife, then my children, I'm supposed to love my wife even if my children hate me or, uh, or I'm failing there. Myself, my wife, my children, my church, my vocation. Do you see? They're concentric circles. And so we're going to be looking at those issues. We're going to get very practical, but the summit of God's grace is the cross of Christ. And if we are not fully Christian men, if we have not submitted ourselves to Christ, then we cannot rule in any area. And by rule, I mean, how did Christ rule? He put himself between the serpent and the woman. That's what we're going to be looking at. So if you're afraid of these ideas of dominion or masculine authority or becoming mature men, and it sounds weird to you or, or unchristian, it's actually thoroughly Christian. It is Christ-likeness to do these things. We have been given these realms as a trust just like Adam was a vice regent or a vice ruler for God, ruling in his place, ruling in his stead. We have been given these things, everything we've been given, we've been given it as a trust and our stewards, and we will give an account to how we handle these things. By God's grace alone, we will press on to maturity. There's a very interesting phrase in Hebrews 6, 1 and 3. It says that let us press on to maturity, and then verse 3 says we will do this if God allows. 
Isn't that an amazing? God is sovereign over Christian sanctification. So this is our goal, to press on to maturity and be faith-filled, obedient in every area. I want to give you some practical steps for this. Um, we're going to try to give very practical steps as uh, not really homework. It's, it's more like life work. Um, I, I want to I say two things. If you're not routinely reading the scriptures, you cannot obey God because you don't know what God is asking you to do, telling you to do, excuse me. I need, I need to be sanctified in my theology. You, so if you, if you began this year and you have said, boy, I want to read the Bible and I want to be really mature, I want to grow in grace, I, I have a de- godly desire. That's a good thing. As Christian men, we have to be reading God's word. And I want to give you some encouragement. I am four days behind in my Bible reading. Even pastors get behind in their Bible reading. If you have not started a Bible reading plan you have my permission to call March 1 your January 1. You have my permission to do that. Um, I, that's a joke. You don't need my permission. <clears throat> so many of us, we think, well, I've kind of missed the boat already, and I've got to wait till next year. Don't do that. Read the Bible. And don't come up with a crazy plan of, I'm going to read and eight different places, and have one section. Just read in the Old and New Testament every day. What, however you want to work it out is fine. If you want some input, you can come to me later. The second thing I want you to do is find two brothers who can challenge you and who you can challenge, and you can't choose me. <laughs> Why? Because you need godly Christian brothers as much as you need spiritual fathers. He gave us both for a reason. And then if you, if you are wanting to understand some of the input for these ideas. Uh, there's many books that you could read, but I would encourage you that godly preaching is very important in addition to book reading. Um, John Piper has been a very important person in my life in that he, his love for the word has been very challenging and very convicting. And so if you want to listen to material apart from the Sunday services here and apart from other things that you might, uh, might find on the internet, I can heartily recommend these two sermons, Why Did God Create the World, which is very similar to this talk but is different, and then If My Words Abide in You, um, which is just as a, on, on a personal testimony, I was... That sermon has changed my life, if my words abide in you. In that sermon, he demonstrates that the word is much more vital than we could ever imagine or hope. So I hope this was helpful to you. I hope you're inspired for what we're going to seek to be doing as as a group of men. Uh, It will become more practical as we go forward, but I wanted to lay this foundation of what is the point of being a man? It's to live in harmony with our God, receiving his grace and being transformed by his word, spirit, and church to begin to walk in the maturity that Christ has purchased for us. And um, I also want to encourage you that if you're not living in this model of having people that you relate to and you're just kind of hiding parts of your life, choose brothers who you can really open up to. Don't choose the youngest brother in the church. If you are 
If you are in a place where you're not reading your word, you're struggling with major areas of sin, choose more mature Christian men. If you want suggestions, you can talk to me afterward. But, but I want to I encourage you, this is going to, hopefully, by God's grace, this environment will become a fraternal relationship. And what I mean by that is not hazing and, and I, I saw that fist bump. I saw that fist bump. It, it will be a society, a fraternity. Fra means brother in French. It, it will be a, a relationship in which we can be strengthened as men. It's very important that we are connected as men to other Christian men because life is war. And, and if we are just off running our gardens how we see fit, we will not defeat the serpent when he comes. So I want to close in prayer and um, then we can open it up for questions or we can just dismiss. It's up to you guys. So Father, we, we come humbly. We come, Lord, as as men who we have played Adam's part so often, probably even this morning. And Lord, we confess we are in such need of grace. We heartily admit that we can do nothing apart from you, that we can do nothing outside of you, that in us dwells no good thing. But Lord, even in saying that, we immediately thank you that you give us victory through Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have conquered death in the grave, that you are going to raise us to life by your spirit and your word. We pray, Lord, that you would call us up to maturity. We pray that we would be done forever with childish things and that you would call us up by your grace to become men who are strong in the faith, who are radically in love with you because of your great love for us in Christ and that from that we begin to take authority in in your authority over everything that you've stewarded to us. Lord, we, we know that only if you allow us to do this and enable us to do this can we do it. So we, we ask you, Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come and do this in us. We ask this for Christ's name. Amen.